Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Well, today we, uh, that ringing, we got that ringing's going to get us. Uh, today we're going to start week two of our uh, new sermon series, The Good Life. Uh, last week, if you were here, uh, we opened up the book of Ecclesiastes and, well, we made the great point made in the book, in the Bible, that everything was meaningless and vanity and vapor. And the word I got back was that uh, many took that to heart, and there are a lot of unmowed lawns and undone dishes that laundry is piled up because what does it matter? And I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. You did it. Good job. Uh, we heard last week that there's nothing new under the sun, that there is just life on earth that is a cycle. And then at the end of the day, what we realize is that we return to dust, that all is meaningless. It was pretty bleak. We ended with some hope. If you missed it, you want to go back and listen to that. Uh, if you want the hope part, you want to skip through the first 93%. But I think it's all going to be good, because this week we're going to uh, jump back into the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to do so by, uh, introducing a concept that uh, the author David Gibson introduced to me. He had a book he called Living Life Backwards. And it's kind of the idea we're going to dig into today. And he started his book, just to tell you kind of where we are today, to give you a little bit more sense of the hope we have. He started his book with this very hopeful quote by Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. All right, so week two is off and running. This is where we're going. That's really the point of today. In week one, we established that life is vanity. No amount of collecting or winning or saving or spending actually makes us satisfied. And so the big point from week two is that the preacher, and that's the, the author of Ecclesiastes, we're calling the preacher because that's what he calls himself, the preacher basically exposes all of the things that we use to create a bubble that insulates ourselves from the reality that we will eventually die. And so what is that bubble, what is that insular bubble made of, of the distractions? So like, why are, why, are we, why are we prone to scrolling through our phone and just endlessly swiping? It's a distraction. It kind of keeps us separated from the reality that time is passing, that things are hard. It's, it's a distraction. Or why do we collect the things we collect? I was with a friend this last week who collects uh, vinyl records, and he has hundreds of vinyl records and a Spotify subscription. And I was trying to help him make sense of the two things, and he, the, it didn't connect. And I was like, but you don't need, because you have these, but now you have this, and what do you... I feel like we're wasting time here. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. You get to go to the record shop for hours and search for the things you always wanted. I was like, but it's in your phone. And so we were, I was like, but why do we collect? Collecting's not wrong, but it's a good distraction from the ever-rolling train of life that is eventually falling off the cliff is what we're learning here. So what we're going to learn, what's the thing that bursts the bubble, the insular bubble that we create for ourselves? What's the thing that takes us out of that false reality and drops us into um, God's true reality for our days here. And this is where you have to buckle up because the thing that does that, the thing that actually breaks us out of the bubble and gets us back into life is death. Death is what gives meaning to life. You strive, you live, you work, you die, and then you're forgotten. And short of recognizing that death is on the horizon, 
we can get lost in that bubble, we get lost on the treadmill, and we forget what we're actually here for. And so what we're going to do today is make sense of life by considering death. And we're going to start by uh, looking at some people that uh, have been in my life. This is my mama and my papa. That's them. That picture is from like 1730, maybe. Um, that's my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, and the little girl in the blue dress is actually my grandmother, who's 95 right now. And um, I knew them. I, I think I knew five out of my eight great-grandparents. I think that's how that worked. Um, I was, my, my, Ben is the name of my great-grandfather, and Justina is my great-grandmother. And they, they lived behind the Handy Andy grocery store on the east side of San Antonio. They didn't have air conditioning. It was a little ranch house. Um, the top of their fence had spikes in it, so when you try to climb the fence, you'd, like, burst your hand, and it would bleed everywhere. I remember this pretty well. My, gr- my great-grandmother lived until I was maybe 8, 9, 10 years old. So I actually got to know her pretty well. Um, we'd spend summer days at her house making peach preserves, and if you've ever made peach preserves, it just means you boil lots of things on a hot stove for a long time in the summer when it's 103 degrees in a house with no air conditioning, and it's just, I mean, it was just torture. But I look back fondly now, and I go, oh, that was like an experience. I got to know her a little bit. I got to know about her. I loved her as much as a little boy can understand that this woman who gives me fresh cucumbers, you know, it was like a thing. There was a relationship. My kids never met them. My kids don't know them. My kids don't have any understanding of who they were. My kids don't know their voices. My kids don't know their laughter. My kids don't know that Ben was a cook and a good cook, or that Justina made the best cucumber and tomato salad on the block. They don't know that. To uh, my children, my great-grandparents, who I met and spent a decade with, are ghosts. They are stories, and they are simply my distant memories. That's how they live on. Death has a way of making us honest. The point here being that you will die and utterly be forgotten. And if that sounds harsh, then go back and try to name your great-grandmother's mother or your great-grandfather's, your great-great. You can't get past great before you start having real trouble even having the name three or four generations back, much less what did they do, where were they from. And unless you're one of these people, and I admire you, if you're the ancestry people and you've traced it all out and you're like, I can go back to 1200 BC, and you're like, wow, that's impressive. Um, Most of us can't go back more than three or four generations before we lose track of what the name would even be, much less where they're from or what they did. My kids would not have known that their names were Ben and Justina. My kids know maybe that I had a papa and a mama, and they go, how do you even spell that? And I go, I don't know. I wasn't old enough to really write it. We just called them that. They're forgotten. Their kids won't ever know they existed. Their sound, uh, the sound of their laughter will be lost. Everything that they built is gone. Everything they collected eventually ends up in a bag in the landfill, If that feels harsh, I think my point today is I'd like to convince you that the realization of the inevitability of death is the greatest gift we can give ourselves if we want to live life well. So if you leave today and someone says, how's that church you're at? You can say, last week we got told that all of life is meaningless, and this week we got told that the solution to that is death. 
Uh, our membership classes in October still have space, if you're asking. <laughs> More space than they had yesterday. Um, I love this idea so much because it takes time. We actually have to be thoughtful about it to really get there. It's easy to do the happy, clappy, like, oh, that's fine, and that's good, and it's, a lot of that's true, but this takes real thoughtfulness. And so if we say we're going to live life backwards, if we're going to start with the ending, this is something we've talked about before. Let's go back to David Gibson and, and hear his quote. His quote is this. He says, death can change us from people who want to control life for gain into people who find deep joy in receiving life as a gift. Which when you think of it like that starts to make sense. Like if you know you're going to be forgotten, then you're free to stop living as someone who's trying to be remembered. And so many of us spend our lives trying to make a mark that we might be memorable. And if we knew we'd be forgotten, then we can, we can eschew the things of like the temporary and start focusing on something greater. Life is a gift to be enjoyed, not a game to be won or a system to be exploited. And so the preacher of Ecclesiastes is showing us that the gift of life is in learning to go beyond the silliness of treating it like a contest. So he's going to show us, in order to get there, he's going to show us the highlight reel of the life of King Solomon. He's going to go backward through all of it to show us that it's vapor and it's vanity so that we might start living with the ending in mind. Now as opposed to getting to the end of life and then realizing that it was all for naught and that nobody wants the stuff I've put together in nice little packages to give them anyway. So let's take a tour of life with the preacher. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. Scripture says this, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. And I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Solomon goes through all that he'd had, all that he achieved, all that he gained, and his path is actually pretty typical if you think about our path as kind of modern people. It's not all that different. The first thing he goes through is pleasure-seeking. You know, that like 15 to 25-year-old zone for most of us where you're like, well, maybe it's in this or that or the other. And most of us go through a pleasure-seeking season. We try things out. Maybe this will satisfy. It doesn't work. And so then we, we look into other things. Well, how about wine? Maybe that will work. It didn't work. So then we get into our mid to late 20s and we say, you know what, I need to settle down. Maybe it isn't in being wild, it's in being settled. And so we settle down, we try to buy a house, and we get home ownership. We don't have a vineyard like him, but maybe, you know, we bought some grapes, same thing. And so we, we have our home and we're eating our grapes and we go, did this work? Not so much. What about, what about pools, though? Maybe pools will help. No, that didn't satisfy. What about just straight up, Solomon? What about just straight up owning people? didn't satisfy. What about owning people who make more people that I get to own? Not that either. Not that either. 
Okay, so herds and flocks. So you have a dog. How about 12? How about 20,000 cattle? Because that's what he had. Didn't satisfy. What about his flocks? Didn't satisfy. What about entertainment? Because we get to an age where we go, you know what? Maybe it's just an entertainment. And that's why Branson, Missouri exists. And so Solomon had every streaming service available and the NFL Sunday ticket. And he kind of found it boring. None of it really moved the needle for him. He says at the end of the day, it was all just vanity. He lived the most outlandish life of pleasure you can imagine. He said, I considered pleasure. He had parties. You go to other parts in the Bible, it describes the parties that were had. He is not throwing a trash can punch down while he's playing beer pong over on Court Street. I see people on Court Street next to the cookie jar, and they got quite the setup, and it is so sad. You're like, this is pretty sad. Solomon's not at that party. Solomon has, you have friends over. He has thousands of friends over for a week solid, and the food never stops coming out. Have you ever hired somebody to help you with a home project? Solomon once conscripted 30,000 laborers to build a temple. Are you thinking about getting a jet ski or maybe a cabin up north? Solomon had ships upon ships and a home in solid gold because silver was kind of beneath him. You have a corner lot? Maybe you have an acre? He had national parks. He once gave as an offering 20,000 cattle and 22,000 sheep, as an offering, like as a sacrifice, like his tithe. He dropped it in the black boxes as he left. He's like, here, have 42,000 animals. He owned 12,000 horses. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So whatever you've dreamed of, Solomon did times a thousand. And he gets to the end of his life and he goes, it was all meaningless. So let's recap for you. What's that secret life goal? What's that thing? Maybe you've never even told anybody, but deep down you're like, maybe if it's this though, if I can just get there, or if I can just have this, then I think I'd be happy. Maybe you've never said it out loud. Is it to make it big and be super successful? Is it to get the respect of your peers? Is it about money? Or is it about gaining millions to splash on toys? Is it about position or power? Is it just about being the boss? I just want to be my own boss. Is it about consumption, great steaks and fine wine? Is it about being desirable and attaining some sexual fantasy? Solomon could have had a different partner every day for three years and had never had the same woman twice. And he said it's meaningless, and it was vapor, and it was vanity. It left him empty. And so the preacher sits with us on the porch, and we get our rocking chairs, And he's got his sweet tea in a mason jar, and he says, come a little closer. And we come a little closer, and he goes, look back at my life. I did this, I did this, I did this, I had this, I made this, I grew this, I owned this. And we go, wow, that's incredible. He goes, but it isn't at all. It was emptiness, it was meaningless, it was vanity. Solomon lived the life that is common to all of us, the only thing uncommon about it was the excess to which he lived it. We look at this, and we're easily, we easily dispense with his life. We go, well, that's, listen, this is absurd what you're going through. The, the levels of his living are so absurd that that can't compare. And I would say Sol- Solomon's life is the common life lived to uncommon excess. So he's taking all the common things and just going, I'll take it to the furthest absurd degree just to show you that it's worthless. There's nothing unique about the quality of Solomon's life. The only thing that was unique was the quantity. Is it unique to want a house? 
No. Is it unique to want a different house, a new house, a bigger house, or a smaller house? Depends on your season. No, that's normal. Is it unique to want nice possessions? No, we like nice things. Or a partner for true companionship or for pleasure? No, we want those things. Is entertainment, the desire for entertainment, unique at all? No, we all have different hobbies and things that that capture our attention, that, that we like to watch or see or do. Is it food and drink? Does anybody in here is like, you know what? I want the worst food and drink, though. I'm trying to get worse. I've really been moving my way down. I'm doing instant coffee and boiled oats, and that's about it. Nobody wants that. Everybody wants a little better. Sure, I'd take nice. Delicious things are great for us. Vacations, education, friendship, none of these things are unique. These are the things that Solomon's chasing. None of them are unique. Not to you, not to me, not to Americans, Africans, Asians, people. From the past, people in the future, we will want the same things. When he says there's nothing new under the sun, apply that here. We all want the same things. Every person seeks fulfillment. Every person seeks satisfaction. And it is utterly, depressingly common when you think about it. So showing off the life of Solomon is to prove to you and to me that, being, that a life being unfulfilling and unsatisfying isn't about how much of it you have. We think it's about quantity. If I could just have and we go in the next level, just a little more, just a little better, just a little more, just a little better. If I just had that, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be satisfied. Then I'd find something in myself that would really be settled. And what we find and what Solomon wants to show us is that it doesn't matter the quantity. The quantity doesn't satisfy any more than the quality. Having more of something unsatisfying, I mean, this is, you might want to write this one down because this one's pretty complicated. Having more of something unsatisfying doesn't satisfy you know what, that doesn't really satisfy me. I wonder if I had a lot of it. It's just a lot of unsatisfying, isn't it? The preacher is saying, if you knew that going in, maybe you would live differently. That's the blessing that God is giving us through the book of Ecclesiastes. He's going, if you knew all these things going into life, maybe you would live life differently. Like, if I gave you the sneak peek at the end, then the beginning might look different. And somebody will say, yeah, but what about, I mean, those are possessions and things and like, but what about wisdom? Like you can't give away wisdom and you can't get wisdom. You have to earn wisdom. And then wisdom is this like eternal gift to be handed down. What about wisdom? Gaining knowledge, that's different and better than pleasure, right? Ecclesiastes 2 verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. For the, of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after win. Okay. Let's try on work. Become a titan of industry. Rise to the top. Career success. Vocational status. Verse 22. What has a man from all his toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night does his heart not rest. This also is vanity. So what is it? What satisfies? Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him, who can eat, who can eat, or who can have enjoyment. So since your work and your possessions and your food and your drink and your career and your status are all vapor, you might as well enjoy them, he says, because they're gone as soon as they come. So it's okay to enjoy 
what you eat. And it's okay to enjoy your work. It's okay, it's okay to, to seek joy in those things because he says, what else is there? Apart from God, none of these things have any meaning. And so enjoy the things while you have them. But we have a new idea introduced in that too, don't we? He says, apart from God, what joy can there be? All of these things which were meaningless and vapor and vanity, all of a sudden tied into God, there's this sense that there can be joy there. Apart from God, what joy can there be? But with God, all of a sudden, these meaningless things, like we said last week, these meaningless things begin to, they begin to grow in their meaning. So follow that thought. If life is a cycle, live, strive, work, die, if all of life is meaningless, if everything is vapor, if it's all vanity, then we need something to break the cycle. So what we need is something that doesn't end in meaningless and vapor and vanity. We need something that outlasts death. No matter how many houses or spouses, jobs, bank accounts, accomplishment status, no matter what your 10-year plan is or your life strategy, none of it will keep you from a common end. And this is the challenge we face. None of this will keep us from the common end. Matt Chandler spoke about this 15 years or so ago. And, and it, I heard the first time he said what he said, it kind of jarred me. And I was like, I don't think you can say that in church. And I heard it again because he said it throughout. I mean, they probably did 18 weeks on Ecclesiastes. And I just soaked all of them up because I'd never heard it from this direction. He said, you will die. And you are going to be painted up like a clown and put in a box in the ground. And that's it. And I said, I think that gets you fired when you say that. And then you zoom out just a little bit, and you go, actually, yeah, he's right. He's right. None of the things that we've chased are going to keep us from this common end. For the people we love will show up, and if we are an open casket kind of person, they'll come by and pay their respects to our family as they grieve. And if we're a cremation sort of person, they'll go to the house and finger foods and talk in hushed tones about the things we did. And as I've sat with people who've grieved, I've sat with people who, who've gone through loss, and you live long enough, you go through a lot of it. Eventually those people stop coming. Eventually the, the nice sentiments fade away. Eventually the whispers go back to laughter and people sort of leave behind the person who has left them behind. Eventually, we all reach a common end, and when you reach that common end, for a minute or two, you are remembered. For a minute or two, you are memorialized. For a generation or two, they might know your name. But so many of us live in this idea that we're creating a legacy for ourselves. And I'm not saying that's not real. A legacy of faith lives long after you. If you get generational wealth and you give that down to your children, I mean, that lives long after you. Those things are real, and the Bible is, is, is very clear about the promises, especially of faithful living, that faithful living is a generational blessing. And though your great-grandchildren may not remember your name, they might know your faith through their parents and their parents' parents. So that's real. But for the most part, we live a life trying to create some legacy, trying to be known, trying to be celebrities on some tiny little scale. Maybe people will know my name. And what this says is no one's going to know your name. And that's okay. That's actually freedom. 
We have members of, of Covenant Church that are in Dallas where Matt Chandler, who I just read the clown quote from, is preaching. And they said, where should we go to church? Because we're in Dallas for an extra weekend and we just, maybe you know somewhere. And I was like, we absolutely know somewhere. And I said, Matt Chandler, actually, this like kind of Christian celebrity preacher guy, he's written all the books and he's a real cool guy. He grew up in my wife's house when he was in college in Abilene, Texas. He spent his time in Steph's house through some sort of church program. And he did laundry at their house and he ate dinners with them and he taught his the, the little sisters had to wash uh, waltz, and he, he baptized them. And like Matt Chandler was like an intimate part of my wife's life. And I bet if you walked up to Matt Chandler today and you said, this is Stephanie Slough, he'd go, why does that sound vaguely familiar? Because our church member said, do you want us to say hi to anybody while we're at that church? And I said, no one there knows our name. That's okay. No one there knows our name. It's not about that. We just want you to go have a great experience. No one there knows our name. And when we start living like that, we're freed up in a new way. The gift of knowing that we're all going to meet an end is that if you'll die and eventually be forgotten, you're free to stop living as someone who wants to be remembered. The striving can stop and the cycle gets broken. And the gift of the preacher is this. It saves us from living all of life and then realizing that it was all worthless. And so we ask the question again, what doesn't end in vapor? If the point then is that it can't be about all the stuff that just ends in dust and vapor, what is the point? And the point implied is it has to be about something that outlives that. It has to be about something that doesn't die. So Jesus arrives to give hope again, to rescue from the live, strive, work, die cycle. Jesus says these things. He basically comes to earth and says, I'm here to break the cycle. I've done the work, I've conquered death, I've established a path for you not to vapor, but salvation. Not just death, but eternity. Jesus offers true pleasure and true wealth and true status and true life. And so when we say we want the good life, we don't want all the things we can collect. We want the one thing, the one person that never ends. So we ask the question then on this theme, how do we get that life? Because it's a little depressing you know, I'm just really chasing some things. I was making progress in my career. I was doing this great thing. It's a, how do we get the life then, Jesus? How do we get this life that makes meaning out of meaninglessness? Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says, grab your cross, deny yourself, be forgotten, lose yourself, lose your life and find it. Jesus is doing the very same thing that the preacher is doing. He goes, in death, life has meaning. When you're willing to lose yourself, you'll be found again. If you're willing to die to self, you can have life in Jesus. Jesus has the same exact message that the book of Ecclesiastes has for us, which is that death gives meaning to life, except that in Jesus' world, you don't have to wait for the end of your days to experience it. You can die today and take on his life today and live in eternity today. You're not waiting for the end. You're not waiting for that last moment. You're waiting only on your own inclination to say, I'm giving up and I'm following you. Jesus, I surrender my life and I give it to you. And in that moment, reality takes hold and eternity takes hold. And all of a sudden, all of the things become meaningful again. Jesus says, die and gain life in me. Jesus' own giving of life to us was accomplished through what? Death. 
The picture of Jesus on the cross is a picture of all of our sins going to die. And in that we find new life because he is risen from the grave because we no longer fear death. And so it is in our physical end that we find eternal meaning. We can leave behind the madness of never enough. We can be lost to a world of striving and be found in him. So now I I don't have to worry that I don't have enough of whatever. I wish we had more money. I wish I had more stuff. I wish I had a different this. I wish I had a better that. We don't have to worry. We leave it behind. And we choose to live life backwards. And all of a sudden, we, instead of chasing whatever the world says is next, whatever the TikTok fad is, whatever the newest thing is, whatever Instagram is selling you, instead of chasing those things, you have the opportunity instead to chase Jesus. I mean, that sounds pretty churchy, if we're honest. It's also the point of life. And if you haven't gotten there yet, if you're going, I don't know, man, that doesn't seem like the point of life. That feels kind of empty. Then you don't really have Jesus in your life. To lay your life down and to pick up the life of Christ is to take on meaning, is to experience fullness, is to know true satisfaction. The gift of Jesus is that in him, you are now living a life that won't be forgotten because it's an eternal life and it's lost in his. In death, we find the meaning of life and we find hope because in death, we find Jesus. In death of ourselves, we find life in Jesus and in Jesus, we find eternity and in eternity, we find the truest of joys. And so what you're chasing today, I don't know what it is, but I know it doesn't compare. And I know on my worst days, all the thousand things I chase, I wonder why I go to bed unsatisfied. And it isn't that I'm doing it wrong, it's that I'm looking at the wrong thing. I'm chasing the wrong person. And when I'm chasing me and what might satisfy, it never works. When I chase Christ and who he is and who he's called me to be, then I want for nothing. So today, recognize that life has an end. You will be forgotten. And then in the freedom of that, Feel free to forget yourself today and chase Christ with everything you have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for his death that gave meaning to our life, that he rescued us from the chains of sin, that he was willing to go through pain and torture, that we might know freedom and lightness of being. Father, as we consider the weighty words of the preacher of Ecclesiastes, I pray that you would uh, clarify them in our own hearts. That for each of us, there's a, a different angle to be looked at. For each of us, there's a different spot where our heart needs to be ministered to. And so, God, I pray that right now that in your spirit, you would be doing that in our folks. God, give us the clarity to know where it is that we're chasing self and we're chasing our own desires Father, convict us in the places where we're unsatisfied and we just haven't admitted it yet. And in those moments, God, I pray that that we would feel a closeness and a presence, Father, that we would know that we are yours and that you give us meaning and you give us hope and in you we have purpose. And so, Father, we lift our hands to you, we lift our our hearts to you when we say uh, invade again today. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. 
and we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m., or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.